You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm here for the March Journal Club podcast and I'm joined again by Ben Simon. How are you? Uh, yeah, good and very happy to have such lovely company on our wintry uh, autumn night, which know, is very wet indeed in South East Queensland. 19 degrees, freezing here in Queensland. <laughs> Positively Dickensian, Vic. <laughs> Positively. So we've got quite the theme this month. We're going to be talking about all things uh, healthcare consumer engagement with simulation and looking particularly at the uh, context of paediatric-focused simulations. Uh, but before we do that, just a little bit of news uh in about 10 days we've got the CSAM meeting coming up that's the European Society for Simulation as Applied to Medicine it's their virtual annual meeting and uh, if you want to google CSAM virtual annual meeting you'll be able to find where you can register for that uh the advances in simulation crew myself included are doing a short workshop on how to get published but there's actually some excellent speakers there Vicky LeBlanc uh Petraea Anderson uh, and a variety of others who have got a really diverse program. So I'd encourage Simulcast listeners, if you're interested, to go and have a look at that. It's in the daytime if you're in Europe. It's in the evening time if you're in Australia or New Zealand. And it's relatively awkward time if you're in North America. But, Ben, why don't you get on and kick us off with these first couple of papers that you chose for the Journal Club? Yeah, absolutely. So we picked two small in-practice reports this month that were both published in BMJ Stell, both with a similar focus but a different approach when it comes to this concept of engaging healthcare consumers uh, and collaborating with them in simulation design as opposed to simulation delivery. And the first of those papers is entitled Lessons Learned from Piloting Pediatric Patient-Focused and Family-Focused Simulation Methodology in a Clerkship Objective Structured Clinical Experience uh, by Sagalowski et al. Um, And I just want to start by reading a few quotes from their opening paragraph because I think it puts things so well and really reflects my own thoughts on why I wanted to choose this topic um, and the importance of including the patient voice in SIM. Uh, They write that despite the rise of patient-centred care and shifts in medical education from teacher-centred to student-centred paradigms, simulation-based medical education is predominantly developed and implemented by medical professionals. They describe that Nestel et al., who we'll be coming to later, have proposed patient-focused simulation methodology as a means of authenticating patient perspectives by involving real patients in the development and implementation of sim-based medical education. They write that this offers a complementarity model of medical education that values equal perspectives from patients, students, clinicians, and teachers. And this reflects contemporary partnership models of healthcare and might herald another cultural shift in medical education. And in particular, they highlight that pediatrics, with its focus on family-centered care, offers an important and previously unexplored paradigm for patient-focused simulation. Um, And to me, Vic, I think that's the crux of it. And maybe why this resonates so much with me is that in paediatric healthcare in particular, we critically rely on parents as both patient advocates and history givers, but we also rely on them to be active healthcare providers on discharge. They take temperatures, they administer medication, they arrange follow-up appointments, they act on plans and they return when those plans don't go as anticipated or don't work. 
And so fundamentally, any plan that we implement upon discharge really relies upon a contrast of a contract of trust between clinician and parent and that we implicitly generate during our brief interactions with them in emergency or on the ward or in outpatients. So this is a really critical skill. And realistically, we often only have minutes to achieve it. And so from my perspective, centering the importance of pediatric patients and their families within our simulations is a really important thing. Um, But when it comes to the fact that when simulation-based medical education curricula are developed, it's often done without the input of real patients. And as this article highlights, that runs the risk of reflecting teachers' preconceptions rather than the authentic needs of the actual patients. Um, and I guess to me, it reminds me a little bit of the conversation that, that happen is happening more in media in general or in uh, book authorship and TV authorship, where we're starting to recognise the importance of having authentic voices in the writer's room to bring their own perspectives and values to those projects. And I think it's a, a similar theme here. Any thoughts, Vic? Yeah, no, I would agree with that. And I'm not sure that there's a reason why that should be specific to paediatric practice, but it does seem more of a cultural norm. I'd like to think that contract should be just as existing in uh, adult medicine as well. But I take your point, there does seem like a uh, engagement of parents as a uh, partner healthcare provider, which isn't as easily uh, visualized in the adult population. But I also agree with you in that this is a trend that clearly is about understanding that uh, care is co-created. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you. I think it's equally important. I think probably the tipping point for taking that jump is probably lower in peds because it's just like you said, it's an easier headspace shift. Um, yeah. So in this first article, the authors collaborated with two groups, a family advisory council comprising of parents who have had children given care in, it's a bit of a mouthful, New York Presbyterian Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital, and the uh, CHAT council, which is a volunteer group of teens above 12 years of age who received care in that same hospital. And they conducted feedback sessions to develop and revise three proposed pediatric OSCE cases, collaborated on simulation patient training, and observed and gave feedback on the OSCE pilot. And in the end, they came up with three sims, a febrile infant, an adolescent with an STI, and an adolescent with appendicitis, and they were piloted with 20 med students on their peds rotation. And the authors described that that collaboration changed their sims in a number of ways. They added granularity to the communication techniques valid by patients, such as narrating the physical exam. They created more diverse character sketches with non-binary character names, mixing up the sexual orientation and changing the mannequin skin color. Although I was curious from the article, it didn't seem to specify that I could see about whether that reflected the diversity of their patient subset or whether that reflected the values of their patient's perspective on the importance of diversity. Uh, and they titrated their scripts to respond to specific keywords identified by patients. And then they adjusted the environment to increase physical realism as perceived by patients. And you had some thoughts about some of the methodology as well, Vic. Uh, yeah, well, I think they're interesting way that they have looked at what those outcomes were because I think whenever you're trying to introduce an element like this you kind of think well how do we know if that's been a benefit and so this although it was just a short in practice report which are very practical um, 
article typed in BMJ still. Uh, this logic model that they use, I just thought I'd mention, not because I'm an expert on it, but because I've seen it a few times as a way of evaluating a curricular intervention uh, in medical education or health professions education more broadly. And basically, this is something that looks at a representation of how a program is thought to work by looking at the relationships between the inputs the activities, the outputs, and the outcomes of an educational program. So as you can see, this gets us well beyond just saying, oh, was the program better than it used to be, using an historical control and asking people if they like it, or were two curricular interventions better or worse? It sort of takes us to a, a more appropriate kind of evaluation which says what went into it, what did people actually do, uh, what were the outputs, and then what were the outcomes. And they have a nice little table in this article that gives a visual illustration of that, and I thought it might just be useful if people are looking for ways to evaluate their uh, curricular innovations. Yeah, it certainly makes it nice and tight and, uh, and clear and having that underlying structure um, I think could potentially help you find other stuff to report as well so mm. i did think one of the um outcomes was kind of interesting the titration of expression uh i've just been listening to malcolm gladwell's talking with strangers book and it basically says everything we think we know about people's facial expressions is probably not quite right so uh i did think possibly the healthcare consumers and the professionals were falling into the trap of thinking about how patients might manifest their expressions but uh, the reality is maybe none of us know well, I think that's an interesting point, and I might segue slightly to Dan Hufton, who was our uh, solo journal club responder uh, this month. Thanks, heaps, Dan. And he did mention that as well in a different way, in that he he said well, it was interesting that the um, healthcare consumers gave feedback in this study on the importance of an authentic environment, so uh, the layout the paraphernalia in the adolescent healthcare clinic, for example. And then Dan sort of contrasted that with our discussion last week on functional task alignment and is that stuff actually important for your assessment? And I thought that was an interesting dichotomy in that uh, by engaging a group of consumers who are not necessarily educationists, you are getting feedback on stuff that you may not necessarily agree has value. Um, so it's interesting. I, know. I, I feel like... That is one of the challenges with this paper is that assessment is a very broad concept to roll into this. I think it would have been easy if they were looking at learning type scenarios, whereas assessment, I think it's a very valid thing to involve healthcare consumers. It's just very difficult and it's sort of harder to know exactly how best to do that. Yeah, it was a bit of a surprise choice for the intervention that they had to choose that uh, SIN methodology to be the one that they change. but. I agree. Uh, mm. It was still interesting outcomes on the list. Great, uh, which brings us to a slightly more intimate uh, portrait. So um, this is a paper that I co-wrote with my colleagues uh, in Queensland Children's Hospital uh, entitled Practical Reflections on a Collaboration with Healthcare Consumers on the Development of a Simulation, and again published in BMJ Stell as a short in-practice report. Uh, and our intention with writing this was really to share a couple of important things. So one was that we wanted to give an example of learning from your and Eve's work, Vic, on how educational healthcare simulation also transmits culture and how that realisation and publication then empowers us to intentionally rather than accidentally transmit culture through sim. And then secondly was that for many of the examples of healthcare consumer collaboration in sim design, they often revolve around 
big committees or councils and research projects that can be a huge amount of work. And we really wanted to highlight just something that is small, that is simple, but how that can still have a pretty meaningful impact on your simulation uh, in an authentic way. So basically with this, our febrile neutropenia sim was designed around helping emergency or ward nursing staff access a child's port efficiently, safely, and in a family-centered manner. And the sim itself is very simple and designed to just be used as an insight to extension of earlier training on a part task trainer, allowing for opportunities to look at how a healthcare team would access a port efficiently in their clinical environment. So the kid's febrile but not septic. They've had their cream on. Everything's going well, and they have a parent who's well-versed in their care. Uh, But because we release our sims as packages that include supplementary educational material to reinforce that your sim is part of a bigger educational whole, uh, and we found there's a bit of an educational gap in showing work as done with children versus work as imagined on a mannequin. Uh, So while there's plenty of videos on accessing ports, for example, we couldn't find any on accessing ports in a child that actually showed what that might look like in real life. And so our oncology nurse educators found a wonderful family who were happy to have their child filmed, uh, and we filmed his port access uh, for his uh, leukemia treatment and then also interviewed his mum about her perspectives uh, about what makes uh, a high-quality port access experience for them as consumers. Um and yes, because there's a uh, very big gap, isn't there, between a mannequin and a child in terms of their behaviour and so many things. So it's both not surprising um, but at the same time uh, a really big gap, the fact that there weren't any of those videos beforehand. Yeah, yeah. So that was something that we wanted to address and it's obviously something that can be tricky to arrange, so we were very lucky there. Um, but, again, we really wanted to support that mother's advocacy on her perspectives on access Uh, I think parents of children with chronic disease can often be stereotyped and denigrated in sim and in the workplace as being fairly controlling um, or intense to deal with. Um, And so we're really wanting to target this cultural value, which was the centrality of the parent-child dyad as a valued part of the healthcare team. So from our learning, though, we did come up with a few small challenges. And one was, again, that parents as consumers are not necessarily going to have the same goals that you do as an educator. Uh, and so you have to work out, well, if we're going to engage this person authentically and ask for their opinion, how do we then meaningful make sure that that opinion is respected while still hitting our educational goals? Um, and the second point, which isn't really in the paper, but I did think was just interesting to bring up in the podcast, Vic, was that we've done three of these now. And I think in different ways... I've probably recognised that we need to be mindful of the impact of our collaboration on the parent. And so we recently released a plenary, for example, on um, detecting the deteriorating child in hospital where we involved quite a heavy collaboration with parents of a child whose diagnosis was originally missed. And I'd say that while we were interviewing them, I realised that while they were keen to participate in that process and I thought that I was helping them with healing from that trauma by channeling it into advocacy, uh, in actuality in that moment there was also an essence, there was also an element of, you know, uh, subtly and slightly re-traumatising them by going through that again for my own educational gains. And so that was an interesting 
intention to work out how to negotiate and something that I think is important to reflect upon. And this has come up a few times now. So we did a, a palliative care sim where we engaged a palliative nurse practitioner who had lost her own son as a pause and discuss coach during a sim. Uh, and so we identified in discussions with her prior to the sim that we really needed to drop our physical realism um, and sort of emotional fidelity to the lowest mm. dose possible uh, to avoid that becoming overwhelming for her and still being able to maintain a meaningful experience for her being able to coach other staff. Um, yeah. Well, you, you said you didn't put it in the paper, but I think I definitely saw in there this tension between trying to be have an authentic portrayal, uh, an authentic parent voice versus the safety of your learners and the safety of the people who are involved. So I think, yeah, and that does come up in the other article that we're going to talk about with the Boston Children's Hospital as well. And I think for all the reasons you correctly identify, they've got a child psychologist involved in uh, that. And that's even where their participants are parents and children in their simulations. So I think you're right to be cautious, uh, but at the same time, there's sort of big gains to be made as well. So uh, I guess it's always difficult when you're trying to condense the experience of many into one portrayal as well, and I feel like that's a tricky thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. So Dan Hufton commented on that in the Journal Club as well, sort of contrasting the two papers, one of which drew from a large group of perspectives um, and one of which just took a single family and tried to incorporate their story. And he just identified the way that that can bring out different things. And so I think... Uh, having a small conversation uh, with one family can still be a very productive experience for them and us in terms of the impact that it has on the paper. And it always is an internal ethical benchmark of how we're representing this group who are involved in our process. And I think that does change things um, versus getting a more maybe accurate overwhelming average of a large group of people that might give a more representative perspective that might not necessarily be uh, as individual or granular as a single story. Yeah, anyway. it'll be interesting to see. And I think one of the notes that I just had written here when I was reading it was it's like we had a very expanded impact on those involved well beyond the specific example of the port access. Coming back to your cultural compression point where you started here and that is just getting people to think hmm how would parents and children think about this yeah absolutely and i think uh i remember jesse has sort of mentioned before the meaning is that what is it, the medium is the message and and saying well look if we are trying to signal this value then we need to role model that value as well another canadian said that they're clever people <laughs> exactly marshall mcclure <laughs> You're listening to Simulcast. All right. Well, inspired by your choices, Ben, I picked a couple of articles in the same theme. Um, should we go into that? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So the first article as an extra paper that I picked is by Andre Gamble, uh, Margaret Beerman and Deborah Nestel, entitled Engaging Young People as Simulated Patients, a Qualitative Description of Health Professional Educators' Perspectives, also from BMJ Stell this year. Uh, and here they're going to talk about 
CASPs, there's a lot of acronyms in this world and they haven't yet settled on consistency and CASPs are child and adolescent simulated patients. So the background to this is uh, that, just as you said earlier, children and adolescents are a pretty unique patient group um, and it makes sense that having child and adolescent SPs would help healthcare professionals improve their practice um, and their skills in caring for this group. And as they point out in the background, children might actually get something out of it because they learn a little bit more about healthcare professionals and about systems and so they may be better um, prepared to make the most of their own healthcare. But unsurprisingly, their practicalities and risks, can children really consent to do this? Will they get fatigued and tired? And a little bit aligned with what you were talking about earlier, what's the effect of the uh, role portrayal, just as there is for child actors? So the research that they did uh, was an exploratory qualitative approach looking at the perspectives of the health professional educators on this topic. Uh, and so what did they do? They uh, interviewed 13 participants, which by their own admission were quite hard to find because very few people have a lot of experience of working with child and adolescent SPs. So in fact, you could qualify to be interviewed even if you just worked with adult SPs um, and had at least one encounter with volunteer children, which I thought was actually a pretty low bar to get in as a participant in this, but I think that just does emphasise the uh, infrequency that we uh, work with child and adolescent SPs. Uh, they did semi-structured interviews with these groups and they came up uh, in excellent qualitative research methodologic style with six themes uh, that I'll just kind of go through unsurprisingly some challenges and concerns uh did a lot of the educators actually said do we really need to do this we've got real patients and we've got mannequins why do we need something in between which i thought was an interesting thing uh but then also those concerns that they mentioned in the background how do you recruit children and adolescents um how do you get them for consistent role portrayal if that's relevant for the program that you're doing uh will they um, obviously find the whole thing fatiguing or stressful. Uh, there's also logistical barriers. I know when we wanted to engage a child in just a trigger video that we were doing, uh, our local university HR said you can't pay them anything or else it's child slavery. Uh, I guess clearly there is just some interesting employment and industrial relations issues around children and not everyone is familiar with how to solve those. Uh, clearly there were benefits, that was one of the themes, uh, and one of the other themes was also just about overcoming challenges and giving examples where educators had done a good job of that. Uh, they also, though, talked about one of the themes as being an ethical minefield. In fact, some of those were quite um, concerning stories about uh, the experience of the children, the parents, uh, where maybe some of the things chosen for those simulations really did reach the barriers or the, the limits rather of where you could anticipate that's probably a sensible thing to do from a psychological point of view with um, children or indeed adolescents. So I guess in their discussion what they just point out is there's actually quite a diversity of perspectives and um, really whether that's a function of no one really being that experienced or just the fact that people think quite differently about it. And as they rightly point out towards the end, maybe we need to come up with some standards for working with child and adolescent SPs. Um, but, yeah, good work, hey, Ben. Oh, it's just always so nice to read these really thoughtful, high-quality, qualitative synthesis from uh, these authors and and so it was just a delight to read and I just love how structured and well summarized it all is 
I would say their findings certainly included my own concerns and hesitations, and I do think this is an ethical minefield, and I thought those examples are pretty alarming, but you could very easily see how with the best of intentions you'd fall into some of those um, traps and, and not be able to dig yourself out once you've got an upset child. So I do think to a certain level, you know, some of us have weighed the risks versus the benefits here and gone, hmm, actually, this, this may well be in the too hard basket for what we get out of it and what the impact on the child is. I did love how the authors here really tease out the details from that, though. So they contrast the limited perceived benefit from rotations with high exposure to pediatric patients versus the lack of experience in other curricula and how this could adversely potentially affect learners through omission. Yeah, I think this would be quite hard to sustain unless you are really working in a pediatric environment where you had a lot of uh, nuance and experience in just working with children, full stop, and then uh, thinking about them in simulation is a step beyond I think the standards of best practice is a good idea. People may or may not know, but there are some standards of best practice for working with simulated patients that's published in Advances in Simulation. It's a very widely cited and accessed paper. So I feel like this would be necessary uh, for this group, and I think I'd certainly like that before I got serious about doing something like this because I would feel a little underqualified and quite worried by reading this, uh, appropriately so, I think. Yeah, I agree. And I think um, that that standards of best practice, again, I remember when we did cover it for Journal Club, there you know, was a lot of acknowledgement of, oh, look at all these things we hadn't thought about at all and how useful this is. And I think it would be a very useful proactive uh, group think on some of those challenges that this qualitative analysis has brought up. Absolutely. Well, um, taking a slightly different perspective on this idea about engagement of uh, parents and children. Um, moving then on to the last article, uh, and since we better move away from BMJ still, this one is in Simulation in Healthcare uh, in April 2021, hot off the press, titled Ready Sim Go, an adapted simulation service line for parents and caregivers. Here's our next acronym, Ben. These are PCs. So, uh Look, this is from the um, Lauren Mednick and a team at Boston Children's, including Chris Rusin and Peter Weinstock, who uh, whose work we've covered before. And the background to this, and, and just to be really clear, this is about simulation where the participants are the parents and caregivers. Uh, and the background to this is sort of put in the context of changes in healthcare delivery where there is a shift providing more healthcare delivery at home. That's partly to do with costs and just partly to do with a more patient-centred approach. Um, so as a result, parents and caregivers may need to manage what they describe as uh, life-sustaining therapies on their own, which, of course, can make them anxious, overwhelmed, and they may not really be adequately prepared for that. So what's the role of SIM? And uh, they start out by having a look at all the examples, and there's plenty of published examples where people have developed programs to help train parents and caregivers. And uh, what they said was, how do we standardise and routinize uh, these? Now, I was a little worried at first by the word routinized, but then I actually looked it up, and apparently it's in common usage, so I had to get back <laughs> off my high horse. That, even though I didn't you know, like I did, routinized. I did pause it routinized too, so maybe it just hasn't translated to the Australian 
vernacular. Yeah, I was thinking a typical American thing, but no, it turns out lots of people use it. (laughs) All right, so in the paper, uh, they described how they developed this SIM PC service line, so that's SIM-Parents and Caregivers service line, uh, within their simulation program at Boston Children's. So how did they do that? They developed a working group which had clinical staff, parents and caregivers, and did include these um, child psychologists and others, I think, cognizant of some of the things we've already been talking about. They conducted a literature review, which they then summarised in the paper, which is actually quite useful to see what those examples are, things that I guess doesn't surprise me, but I'd be interested to know from you, Ben, as a more paediatric provider, tracheostomy care, diabetes care, home ventilation, seizure disorders. They're the ones I would have guessed would have been high on the list of things where parents and caregivers are managing things at home. Did that list surprise you? Yeah, no, I guess the content of the sim didn't surprise me. What actually surprised me was um, the quantitative findings in terms of some of the reduction in length of stay and the reduction in time from ICU transfer to discharge home that I was actually um, quite impressed with. Yeah, and there's a kind of outcome measures that if you are looking at return on investment and is this a useful thing to do or is this just window dressing, it looks like it's a critical thing to do, in fact, on a whole number of levels. Mm. 100%. Uh, So then they go through their course design process and they describe the adaptations that they made from what they would call traditional medical simulation. There's a very nice table two in there that I think is just so practical where they look at how to do that. So um, attention to detail in terms of equipment, physical environment. And this table sort of says what's the core feature of the program and then looks at what would be a traditional approach and then how to adapt it for this group. And I'll just give you some example. So example um, of content. Normally the learning objectives may only include um, specific complex tasks if your learners are the healthcare professionals, whereas the problem with that is parents and families have limited experience in these settings, so many of the courses have to include just simple exposure and desensitisation as objectives. And I think That's not something I would have necessarily recognised until I'd probably made a few mistakes the first time. Uh, Similarly, faculty. So in traditional simulation, that's usually healthcare professionals. They create, develop and lead courses. Uh, But obviously in this more PC simulation, and I use the term uh, as a parent and caregiver, not politically correct, uh, and But healthcare professionals don't always get what are going to be the source of concerns for parents and caregivers, so hence including a broader faculty group. And I just thought that table was really uh, effective at giving a practical sense of what needed to happen. Uh, And then they go on just to describe, well, what has been their actual experience? And at the time of writing, they had 11 courses uh, that had involved at this point 250 patients and 450 caregivers in 14 different departments and specialties. So they're coming at this with a depth of experience, I would say. Uh, And they would say overall that this was very well received with improved confidence, decreased anxiety. And I think these programs are at different levels of their evaluation in the kind of return on investment type thing. And so as a result of that, at the end of the paper, they offer a table of tips, which I think both the table we were talking about, but also this table of tips is really useful about participant considerations, teaching style, timing, debriefing. Uh, And they really are at pains also to point out that a lot of this is possible in much less well-resourced settings than theirs, which is incredibly well-resourced and organised. They run a very excellent program there. So I thought this was pretty useful, practical guidance, lots of examples. Um, I think it would 
obviously at a children's hospital you can see this happening. It made me wonder if this was sort of sustainable in a more mixed environment like my own. Uh, but, yeah, more good work, I thought, Ben. Yeah, I agree. I just found it a really aspirational paper but also practical, like you said. I, I loved how it highlighted that thought about we actually were, I think ironically last month we were talking about stress inoculation and I was saying I was a little bit cynical about how often like I've found that my group of learners need stress inoculation and that's where the value out of a sim is. And this is the perfect example of, of sim as stress yeah, inoculation being the absolute perfect intervention for a group of uh, nervous, non-medicalized parents taking their complex kid home for the first time. Um, and I loved how they not only tied stress inoculation through the design of the tasks, but also through the appropriate choice of sort of sim zone um, and how the complexity and structure of the sim can be also directly tied to the zone of proximal development. So I just thought it was very clever. I loved that they highlighted the benefits of lowering lowering parental anxiety as a meaningful intervention because it is sort of known to have a direct relationship on the child's response to stress, and that's reasonably well published. Um, and then I thought they followed through with all of those little details and embedding consumers in the simulation piloting process, really deliberate consideration of language. And I, I thought one really granular thing for me was thinking about what equipment a child would see, say, if they were having a pre-operative sim to prepare for going into OT um, and seeing, having a think about, well, sure, what is the realistic equipment you would have in your sim uh, you would have in a real operating theater and how much of that is that necessary for the sim and how much does that child need to see before they become overwhelmed and more nervous Mm. less and and balancing up well what is my as with every sim what is my you know intent and my learning objective and how do i make sure that's followed through so yeah i thought it was a super clever stuff very jealous it's like functional task alignment is everywhere ben yeah once you start seeing it huh it's like the the (laughs) matrix (laughs) well march was the month for uh parents caregivers and children whether we were thinking about those people as being engaged in designing and delivering our simulation whether they were engaged as simulated patients or whether indeed they were the participants in the sim. I think uh, four papers to give food for thought, and obviously we'll have the links to those in the notes on the Simulcast website, www.simulationpodcast.com. Well, Ben, it's been a lovely month. What's coming up uh, for next month? So uh, speaking of Chris Rusin and Peter Weinstock, we are going to be moving to Sim Zone 4 very heavily next month and talk about uh debriefing and filming real life emergency teams and the ethical and legal complications and implications of that so we're going to look at two papers the first is entitled filming for auditing of real life emergency teams a systematic review i'm going to muck up the pronunciation of these names but it's by Lise Brogard and Niels Ultberg and it's in BMJ Open Quality and uh, the second paper is Ethical, Legal and Administrative Implications of the Use of Video and Audio Recording in an Emergency Department in Ontario, Canada uh, by Stuart Douglas et al. And, uh, in BMJ Innovation. Uh, it's a really interesting 
uh, newer, more sort of uh, spicy part of debriefing and quality improvement. So I look forward to the discussion. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, Lise uh, Brogard is Christian Crow's sister. Get out of town. I know. No, How about that? that? She actually came and did a uh, did a simulation with us in obstetrics when she came out to visit. Mm, the parents must just be so disappointed. <laughs> Between the Canadians and it's the Danes, low, just got all the best. achieving children. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Ben. Well, on this uh, rainy southeast Queensland evening, it's been lovely to talk to you again, and I uh, hope you have a great month. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's good to see you. You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation.